What's happening? Dave Taylor hanging out with you. Welcome to another episode of Eat Sleep Podcast Repeat. And uh, man, we got a special treat for you today. We're going to have an interview with Magnum TA. Let's get some of the business out of the way. And again, we are Eat Sleep Podcast Repeat ESPR. And we're our FM 99s and 106.9, the Fox's only wrestling podcast. We're located in the Hampton Roads area, Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia Beach, Chesapeake. And you can find us under the media tab on those websites at fm99.com and 1069tofox.com. Also, social media, ESPR99 at Facebook and Twitter. And you can follow us there. Maybe get a notification when we go live or post new stuff like episodes like this. And, of course, you can listen to us, as you're probably doing right now, on the podcast app. SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn. Many different ways you can just search ESPR Wrestling, get the notification. So when we do post a new episode, you can just see what's going on. And uh, like we got one here. So why was I talking to Magnum TA? Well, uh, here in Virginia, he's coming to town. Virginia Championship Wrestling. They're going to be at Hampton High School on Saturday night, March 18th. And Magnum TA is their special guest. And uh, they got to bell time at 730. Doors are at 630. And tickets are available. And the uh, concessions uh, benefit the school are going to be available as well. You can get more info, more tickets at vcwprowrestling.com. And you have, uh, here's uh, some of the card. You got uh, w- VCW Liberty Champion Dirty Money defending his title against Greek God Papadon and Platinum Icon Phil Brown in a triple threat match. Dude, Phil Brown, man. Oh, I've seen that guy do some shows at uh, another group around town, and that dude can go. Love watching him. Uh, he's going to be in action. You got Erica Lee taking on Savannah Evans, Gino Medina uh, taking on Caleb Conley, or it's Gino Medina. I'll I'll get corrected one way or another. Sorry, Gino. Uh, the reason with the director of taking on Benjamin Banks with Diamond Victor Griff in his corner. Also, you got uh, Alex Devine taking on Saul Espizarra, and much more going on as well. Again, to Hampton High School. That's of course Hampton, Virginia. Uh, Saturday, March 18th, uh, Magnum TA is going to be there. And uh, speaking of Magnum, the the legend from NWA, who I uh, got to start here in Hampton Roads area, Virginia, and I'll ask him all about that. We ask about uh, some of the toughest guys in the business. We we talk about uh, Tolly Blanchard, because how can you not talk about Tolly Blanchard? I'm sure he gets asked that all the time, but uh, man, oh, man. Let's get into the interview. Enjoy this. Magnum TA on ESPR. Magnum TA joining us today, and uh, how how are things going? Uh, I am I'm busier than a man of of my age should be, but I've been uh, really blessed. Well, you're going to be busy. You're coming to town Saturday, March 18th, part of uh, Virginia Championship Wrestling, as you're coming to Hampton High School. We appreciate you seeing you out there. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I've got I've got some folks there that I haven't seen in a really long time, and it's uh, always good to get back up in the Tidewater area of Virginia. You have a lot of ties, uh, obviously, to the Tidewater area. I think you were born in Chesapeake, Virginia? Actually born in Norfolk. Oh. Uh, but grew up in Chesapeake uh, my my entire youth. And uh, um, my, uh, my dad and granddad uh, had a business together there for 30-plus years, and my mom's dad owned and operated a, a business there and uh yeah just a lot of history in that in that whole area 
And uh, you went to, uh, I know it has a different name now. It was like Nor- It's Norfolk Collegiate now, but at the time it had a different name, right? No, it was Norfolk Collegiate then, too. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about that from high school. How did you transition? Uh, because I know you became a part of like the NWA like in the late 70s, but you uh, you worked in, uh, I guess it was at the Florida and the Pacific Northwest Territories before, you know. Well, so 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 we get our timelines right. So I actually didn't break in uh, the wrestling profession until 1980. Uh, I graduated high school in 77, and I went for a year and a half to Old Dominion University uh, where I was still – wrestling uh in in college but what happened i started training with doing heavy weight training with a bunch of muscle heads in virginia beach and quickly found that i was able to be a much larger version of myself than i had ever believed possible and it kind of didn't go a lot in alignment with my collegiate uh wrestling endeavors because i was uh I, I was a 167 pounder, and I blew up to about 215, uh, like almost overnight. Oh wow! So, so they wanted me to go back down, and said so I wasn't big enough to be a heavyweight, which really wasn't at that time because they they really didn't even have a, a weight limit in college back then. So, you know, at 215, I could have been up against a 300 pounder, and uh, and but it 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 quickly shifted my my focus. Uh, to, you know, the possibilities of what could be done in the world of professional wrestling, which I became, like, acutely aware of because I was working in the nightclubs in Virginia Beach at the time, and those guys were coming in and frequenting uh, Peabody's, or not Peabody's, but Rogue's Gallery, uh, where where I was uh, one of the places I worked. And I just all of a sudden saw that as a opportunity for a career path. Did you, uh, when you saw that, I mean, like, I, I don't know, like, you know, with your parents in, in this town, did you say, like, I'm giving up school and I want to get into professional wrestling? Because at that time, uh, you know, wrestling probably wasn't looked on as, now I knew it was big in Norfolk, but, like, how was it looked on, you know, upon that time? Well, you know, what happened, they they wrote a article uh, uh, in one of the, the, Sunday, the Sunday special edition papers there in Tidewater, and... And it, and it gave an overview of you know what big business professional wrestling was, and, and back you know this is 1979 uh, when you know when I see this, and and there was guys back then that they were touting they were making you know 150, 185 thousand dollars a year, and to me those numbers were like millionaire numbers in my head. You know I was making you know five bucks an hour as a uh, doing construction work with my dad and about $30 a night bouncing in bars. So, you know, the thought of being able to make six figures was just, uh, you know, had my head swimming. So, you know, were my mom and dad, uh, you know, firm believers right from the get-go? Uh, my mom always supported my dreams, but my dad, you know, I think thought it was just another one of those pie-in-the-sky things that I, <laughs> you know, had cooked up in my head. But uh, it, did, it didn't take them long to see that I was serious about it because I, I left uh, Chesapeake where I, in Virginia Beach where I'd been my entire life and moved uh, all the way across the United States to, to start my career uh, on the West Coast. Was that the uh, Pacific Northwest P&W? Yes. Yep. 
Yeah, that that was quite uh, one of the things. I grew up in Michigan, but you know the old wrestling magazines, and always like seeing the articles or, or reading about what was going on at the time there, because you had a lot of guys who broke out in the eighties. Oh yeah, and uh, and that was part of the NWA group. I mean, there was there was more than one alliance, but the NWA was the the one that I was most familiar with, being growing up in you know what they call the Mid Atlantic area. Uh, we watched Jim Crockett promotions, you know, growing up. And, and, uh, so I just, you know, when I, when I saw the opportunity, I knew I had to learn the ropes and I needed to go, you know, perfect this skill set because the last thing you'd want to do is, uh, be less than what you thought you were capable of being, you know, particularly in front of your hometown. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I did. I went about as far away as you could go and stay <laughs> on the continent. And, uh, you know, it started in Portland, Oregon uh, in 19, uh, January of 1980. And uh, spent like six months there and six months down in uh, in West Texas in uh, San Antonio with a promotion there. And then ended up down in Florida in 1982 uh, where I met Dusty Rhodes and and a, uh, and a host of characters that, you know, helped me develop my persona and everything that I ended up doing. And uh, it was kind of a whirlwind ride. My my entire in-ring career was was like, you know, six years and ten months because I had a you know, career-ending automobile wreck in 1986 in October. And uh, But I, I enjoyed an amount of success that some people that have 30 year careers, uh, you know, weren't able to, to do. So I feel very fortunate to have been able to make a mark on the industry. Well, I, I, I want, yeah, I want to, before I, I ask you about the uh, Jim Crockett days, who, who was the guy that trained you? And do you remember like the first time you took bumps? Did you like say, okay, I'm, I'm sticking with this. <laughs> well, see, that's a, that's a funny story because I didn't really train. So I worked out in the ring one time, before I went live. Oh my gosh. Uh, I, I, I worked out with, with a couple of folks in a ring in Portland, Oregon for about two, maybe, maybe three hours, very intense workout. The next day I wrestled live on a TV match and I was booked seven days a week from then on out and learned everything I learned, uh, on the job training. What, what was like the road like? Cause obviously that territory was, you mentioned Portland, and I, I, I'm assuming you're going up to Seattle or Spokane or, or somewhere in that area. Yeah, all the way up to Vancouver, BC. Man, uh, we, we'd go up there, and uh, so yeah, I was covering it from the, uh, you know, the the bottom of Washington State all the way up into the Pendleton Mountains, and uh, it, I was there actually. Uh, you know, that was within a year of Mount St. Helens oh, yeah. erupting. And there was still like <laughs> there was still ash falling, I think, from that when I was there. But uh, yeah, the 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 time in the vehicles uh, and the traveling was definitely the most grueling part of it. What we did in the ring uh, was very intense, and 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 when you're trying to soak up all the knowledge you can like a sponge, you know that that time seemed to last a millisecond, but the the time in between the road, you know, being on the road, hitting the gym, doing all those things uh, is, you know, what took up 
seemed like ninety percent of your time. Yeah, I always wonder the territorial days. Like, when did you know? I guess you have to go to the town and, and find the gym somewhere, right? In order to stay in shape, right? I mean, is that how well, that was done? We, well, like in that, you know, it depended on where you were. You know, where you were. I mean, we lived uh, actually when I was there. We lived in uh, Vancouver, Washington, which is right over the the bridge from Portland, and and all the trip we would drive everywhere we went and come back pretty much in the same day. Oh wow! So you so you'd get up early, hit a gym, and then come get in a, in a car with a you know bunch of other knuckleheads like yourself, and <laughs> and drive, you know anywhere from two to five hours to get to the building, and then you'd be there for, you know for anywhere from three to four hours, and then turn around and drive all the way back home again. Well, that is something because you guys weren't you know doing the hotels or whatever else, so that probably saved you some money in regards to you know, being in one base as opposed to trying to find a hotel in the middle of the night or, you know, who knows what's yeah, going on. And, and, and a lot of the places that I worked, uh, you know, most times the guys tried to find a centralized location in that territory where, you know, even though they could be long grueling drives, you know, I mean, you, you know, like if we went all the way to Vancouver, British Columbia, which was really good hike from where we were, we'd spend the night, you know, there. But if you could get back home in four or five hours, everybody pretty much would go back home. Yeah, uh, you know for that reason. And and uh, you know, like I said, every territory I worked was kind of the same thing. If it was a five six hour drive and you were going, you know, farther away yet the next day, yeah, you know, yeah, you'd stay out on the road. But uh, you know, I I didn't uh, in the early days I didn't spend as much time in hotels as I would later on in my career when we started flying all over the women countryside. When did you become or go from Terry Allen to Magnum TA? Where were you at the time? So I was in, I was in uh, Florida and I'd been, and I'd stayed there at that time for the longest of anywhere I'd been. I was in Florida championship wrestling for a year and a half. And I had had become friends with uh, Andre the giant while I was, in my early, very early days, because I had a I had a big car, and whoever had the biggest car when the when the giant came around, we drove him around, and I met him when I first started in Portland, and we got to be friends there, and then, uh, you know, some, I guess a little over two years later, I see him again in Florida, and we're traveling again together, and he saw that I had kind of, you know, you know paid my dues and learned my way around the ring and knew what I was doing, thought I had a great look. And he came up with the name Magnum TA. Back then, uh, they had the Magnum PI series on with Tom Selleck that was really popular. And back in that day, I was I was known for wearing the Hawaiian shirts, and I had shorter hair than I ended up having later on. And I kind of had a, a somewhat of a resemblance of Tom, I guess, in his eyes. And he came up with a with that moniker with that name Magnum TA. And, uh, so what, I, when I got an opportunity shortly after he came up with that name to go to the mid South territory, uh, I took that name and started that whole character and that persona there. It's an awesome name. I mean, it just, it just sounds, you know, so, so bad, you know, like, like you're, you're not going to take any crap from anybody. I don't just... Well, it, it, it did have a ring to it. And, it took me quite a while to kind of figure out what that that cat was going to do and what he was going to, what his persona was going to be because all I had was a name 
and and really didn't know exactly how I was going to develop the character. But it was a again, it was a learning process, and uh, you had to find something you were comfortable in your own skin doing. And uh, you know, I got the opportunity to to refine that character uh, in Mid South. So when I came to work for the Crockett's in December of '84. Uh, I had it down pat pretty good. Yeah, was that was it the uh, American heartthrob? So you didn't have a, a I don't want to say a gimmick, if you will, but you didn't have a, a character, I guess, until this moment. Or did you develop, you know, so well, is that... Well, I mean, the Magnum TA character in Mid-South was very much a, the precursor to, to what the version they saw when I came to the NWA. I was given much more freedom to do do, be whatever I wanted to be uh, when I came to the, to the Crockett's and, uh, and, and Dusty of course had his hand in the mix and he was so creative. Uh, and you know, he had just, you know, just these great aspirations of things that he wanted me to do. So I, I kind of had the keys to the, the golden city there and was able to, you know, do whatever I could come up with in my imagination. What was Dusty like? I mean, I, I'm more. I mean, I've been watching wrestling since '86, but like, I, you know, he became more, you know, in a different role over the years with NXT and bringing up the stars. And then I would hear the stories. But what was he like at that time? I know he was booking and wrestling at the same time. But what was he like behind the scenes? Oh, he was funny. He was one of the funniest people you've ever been around in your life, and 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 just brilliant, and just yeah, you know, we call him. You know, Cecil B. DeMille's because he he just always thought of things. If you had an idea, he's by the time he finished spinning that idea, it was something bigger than life. And uh, he he just had a vision, visionary type, uh, you know, way of of doing things and creating things that uh, it was it was a lot of fun to be around. And he was just like I said, he was just funny, a funny guy anyway. Uh, you know. Uh, he he, he loved. I mean, he loved to, to have a good time. And he loved to to perform in front of people. And I think uh, I think Dusty's greatest regret was being uh, not being immortal and being able to you know live that character throughout his entire life because he he loved being on stage and in front of people you know more than any, anything he ever did. Yeah, that uh, we, I interviewed him many years ago. I think we put out his book and everything. And I was like, he give me a story. He's like, but you got to buy the book, The Sea of the Rust. He's always about <laughs> the upsell. But uh, one of my favorite stories, and you probably heard it from him, was, you know, if you're training or whatever, like don't do stuff in the match you don't know how to do. That was, to me, always like the biggest thing I heard from other people talking about Dusty. <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing was he believed I could do anything. And if Dusty told me to go do it, I didn't even – I, it didn't even cross my mind to think about if I couldn't do it. Uh, he just, you know, and, and I could believe him saying that because, you know, he was a big guy and, 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 you know, certainly didn't look the most athletic part of, you know, if, as far as his physique, but he was really an incredible athlete. I mean, he played semi-pro baseball and football and, you know, all kinds of things, very gifted athlete, but he didn't look the, you know, look that part. But I think that's one of the reasons he could, come across so well and, and, you know, make the, the public relate to him because, you know, face it, most people don't look like, you know, some sculpted Greek gods like uh, you know, Lex Luger or something like that. Most people can relate more to that common man, hardworking, blue collar, 
type, uh, you know, deal. So, you know, he and I just, you know, had a remarkable friendship and, uh, you know, it was something that was, uh, you know, transposed outside the ring. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just got the best memories ever of Dusty. Yeah, that was quite the time. And then when you're part of Jim Crockett, do you remember the first time you uh, wrestled at Scope? You know, I don't. I, I wrestled there so many times. I can't remember the very first time. Uh, you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, it, it was surre- I know it was really surreal for me because, I mean, I'd watched Elvis Presley perform both at Scope and at the Hampton Roads Coliseum when I was a teenager. And, uh, and in 2000, I mean, 2000, in 1985 or 86, Flair and I wrestled inside of the steel cage for the world title and we broke Elvis's attendance record. Wow. In, in scope. And, and that is just like the craziest thing to, you know, 1977, I'm graduating high school. And to, you know, 1985, 86, you know, less than 10 years later, um, you know, wrestling in, in what was the biggest venue I, I grew up ever be, you know, seeing, uh, for the world's championship, the sellout crowd with, you know, both granddaddies and my mom and dad in attendance. So that's like something out of a Bullman movie. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Yeah, what is so special about that venue? I mean, maybe because it's you know one of the older ones that is still around. But like any wrestler I've talked to that wrestled there, just like what is about the scope that just makes it so you know magical for wrestling? Uh, the, the it's the fans. The fans made it. They were so uh, they were so diehard uh, ingrained in 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 what they were watching and so passionate about it that it was just easy. It was like, I mean, we always worked hard and gave our hundred percent of the ring, but when you've got people reacting to every move you make and like making the sound effects you know, <laughs> you know, for you as you do it, I mean, I watched some of the tapes back from, from scope and from the Charlotte Coliseum and different places where they were that electric. And, and I, cause I, I still follow the product today and I'm like going, man, you know, they'll never, Nobody will probably ever experience that again because it was so different because we darkened the whole building. Everybody's focus is, you know, on ringside, you know, you know, on what's going on there. And people w- were not afraid to be very animated and, you know, expressing their, you know, like or dislike or whatever for what they were watching. And I think it is made for a, a different kind of experience that they can't really duplicate today because it's evolved into you know, something different. Yeah. Plus you could smoke in the venues back then. <laughs> well, you smoke and, and people were, you know, wearing out the beer cart and they were, you know, they weren't feeling any inhibitions. And, uh, I remember in Norfolk scope getting jumped and getting, getting beat up by, uh, Nikita and Ivan and Baron Von Raschke. And I looked down and I saw an extra set of shoes in the ring and I realized a fan had climbed, <laughs> climbed over the barricade and come in the ring to try to help me to be very unceremoniously exited by those three big monsters before he could even, you know, turn around good. But, yeah. uh, 
did, did that happen a lot? Because because you you faced off against some serious heat magnets. I mean, uh, Kamala, like you said, you know, uh, Ivan Koloff, Nikita, uh, you know, Baron and stuff. Did, 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 were there riots? You know, maybe not necessarily Norfolk, but you know, Charlotte or Greensboro or in Atlanta. Yeah, I think I think Telly Blanchard probably felt more just heat of anything I've ever seen in my life. When he when I. I won the U.S. title first from Wahoo McDaniels in, in the in the Charlotte Coliseum, and I lost it to Tully when Baby Dog uh, came down dressed up as a security guard and and handed him a roll of quarters. And the referee, of course, doesn't see it or anything, and and he hit me with that roll of quarters. Quarters flew everywhere, all over the ring, and and I went down like I was shot out of, you know by a cannon. And when he hit the one, two, three. It was it was complete like silence. The whole building had been electric and and it was the most eerie heat I've ever felt. And he told me he said he knew if he didn't get out of that building and quickly that he would never get out of it because there were people just wanted to kill him. And uh, you know, so yeah, I felt it on in in mid south. I'd seen it on different occasions with with hot angles we we'd done. But, uh, you know, the things that were so heated, it was like you knew you were, like, counting in your head, like, if they don't get out of here, they will never get out of here. <laughs> he, he he was one of my favorite heels uh, in his time in NWA, in, in the short time he was in WWF. I don't know, his style and just... I don't know. He he just did it so well that like I can I can get where a fan want want to punch him in the head or whatever because of just how he carried himself in such a fashion. And, yeah, yeah uh, he was so cocky and arrogant, and and uh, and 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 when people would look at him, they would think you know maybe they think they could even do something to him, right? Because they you know he was typically in there with somebody that was you know ten twenty pounds or so bigger and maybe more you know pumped up jacked up looking than he was. But I mean, he was a good-sized guy in his own, and and you know, I mean, he, he's you know, you know, five five ten, five eleven, two hundred twenty-five pounds, which is way bigger than the average guy. Yeah. But I can see where people, you know, could have looked at him and said, you know, think, you know, maybe I could take him, <laughs> or or I could at least sucker punch him and get away with it or something, you know. But yeah, he was he was a he was a heat-seeking missile. He knew how to do it better than anybody, I think. But you, uh, you also you had the famous "I Quit" match with him, and and you know that 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 single piece of work has withstood the test of time like like nothing I've ever seen in my life. I, I've literally I spent more time to, going and doing uh, Q and As and everything you can imagine all over the countryside just talking about that match. Well, Still, it, 30, 35 years later. Well, and to think about it at the time, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't just an I quit match, but the fact that you did it in a steel cage, which you usually don't get that combo. I mean, usually it's just a straight-up I quit or a steel cage. I mean, you put it together, which at the time, yeah, nobody was doing this. And you guys, you know, beat the heck out of each other for 15 minutes. We depicted such a a, a, a just intense struggle inside that, you know, like you said, the cage that people were, you know, and this is the end of a, you know, eight month long feud that we'd been in. So they, you know, really felt like, you know, somebody was going to get carried out on a stretcher and go straight to the hospital. Like something was just devastating going to happen. And we, and we painted that picture pretty well. 
Yeah, and you know the steel cage. You bring up a good point because that's like to me was always the blow off of the feud. I mean, nowadays it doesn't always seem to be that case. It seems to be like a, a, a crutch uh, to continue a feud. But that that to me always single. Oh, that's the blow off to this. I mean, I didn't know at the time. I was young, but you know. But now it makes sense. Going, oh yeah, that that was the blow off of that feud because you guys had the uh, yeah, like I said, that long feud and everything else, and it's an incredible match, especially that one. Yeah, I, I agree in that. And uh, I mean, I two things. I mean, I, I guess three things. I get asked about Flair, of course, and you know the quest for the you know the world title and what could have, would have, should have been, and all that. But but the I Quit match number one, and second to that, the the battle with Nikita in the Best of Seven series for the U.S. title is uh, you know two landmark moments. You know, and certainly my my career that that you know that. A lot of people just uh, were able to identify with, feel the struggle, felt like they were in it with me, and uh, and, and remember things about their entire family unit, <laughs> you know, all circled around those events. Yeah, well, well, for you to not win that seventh match, I mean, how many hearts were broken that night? <laughs> well, yeah, and it was it was by design. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, I, I came back from. Uh, you know, being down three to nothing and, you know, back to, you know, even. And then, you know, it took Crusher, it took Crusher, Ivan and Nikita to, you know, to undo me for the, the match. But I mean, we were, we were, you know, trying to get Nikita, you know, as hot as we possibly can because I was going on to, you know, go back and, uh, um, you know, have a run with the world title. So it was a perfect opportunity for me to, Heat Nikita up even more, knowing I was moving on to what my ultimate goal was. And that was usually like the transition back then. Yeah, I because right, guys, you know, you'd have you know the U.S. title and WWE was like you know it's a little different with Hogan, I guess, because the IC guy was the worker, if you will. But I guess in NWA at the time, you know, like that was like the next step. Okay, well, we we saw what you do with the U.S. title, and now we're going to put you in the program with Flair. Yeah, and it was a it was a test bed. They could they could see how you move the needle, how people reacted to you. It was uh, uh, my you know my my most memorable work, you know, arguably is is of course the Aquit match she would tell you. My most uh, admired work from my own perspective is is what I did with Nikita because with Nikita I was the veteran and he was the rookie and I was the ring general. And we had some really good matches that that were 30 and 45 minutes long. So for me, it was like a, an achievement to be able to go out there with a less experienced guy and have those caliber of matches. And if you have aspirations of being the world champion, you have to be able to do that. What was it like the, f- the first time, you, you know, when, when someone said, hey, we're going to go 20 tonight, or we're going Broadway, we're going 30, uh, we're, you know, we're going to go 40 minutes. Wait, how do you prep for that in your head, or you just go? Like, in cardio, you know, it's, it's a heck of a thing, but, you know, at the time, you know, the what how people work out now, how, how did you get the mindset to wrestle 30 minutes? I just, I, I just looked at it as, you know, not even as an optional thing. Because it was just things what people did in this business that I, you know, loved so much, and I wanted to be the very best at. And so I didn't, I didn't give it a terrible amount of thought beforehand. Uh, when, when I was in Florida, 
that year and a half, and Dusty was he was in charge of the creative in there. I had uh, a lot, a whole lot of thirty and forty-five minute uh, tag matches with my partner Scott, a guy named Scott McGee, and another partner Brad uh, Armstrong. And so I had put a lot of ring time in and doubles in tag team matches, but the singles I didn't get to do, you know, that magnitude of them until I got to to uh, Crockett Promotions. Uh, Flair and I actually went like uh, the seventeen or eighteen hour Raw matches in one month. Oh my gosh! Uh, and uh, and it was just you know it was something you did and and you just you know you yeah your your cardio was amazing. Uh, when you did that every night, it, you know that's what Flair was famous for. He would do those step ups and and Hindu squats and all those things like you know thousands of to keep his his uh, endurance up. And he could do that. He could go an hour every night with, with just about anybody. And uh, you know, so you know, doing that to me that was just part of the uh, the job requirement if you wanted to be on top of the game. Were you guys having the same kind of match or, I mean, were you guys calling different spots uh, during the match or was it like you, when you're going, was it, you know, I don't say the same hour match, but how much, how much did it vary from night to night? Flair's was very, uh, if you watch Rick and I, and of course we were all over the country doing it and it was before the internet and, you know, cell phones and all that kind of stuff. So nobody's, uh, you know, talking about what you did where, but I mean, Rick's were pretty kind of, he had a lot of what I would call routine things that he would throw in the match that I would know, you know, just get used to. But with other guys, it wasn't like that. It was very spontaneous and, and, uh, you know, different where you really mixing things up and very improvisational. But when you've been in the, when you're in the ring, you know, night after night after night with the same guy that kind of, you know, lends himself towards doing those kind of things. Uh, you know, you would you would kind of get used to knowing that you know this was coming up or that was coming up, and kind of getting a feel for it like that. Yeah, and, and maybe did you guys like do something like one night, like oh man, you know, like something like you got heat with something, you know, or your opponent got heat with something. It's like oh, we need to do this the next night just to make sure you we, got. We, that we, we never talked about it. You we, never did. we always just wow. did. It. You know, only thing we ever we we ever. Had any communication about it all, and that generally came through the referee. If we were going to do something, some little different finish, you know, something that involved, you know, maybe you know, knocking the referee down or something here, or there, or whatever, you know, we we would know that. But that outside of that, we everything else we just didn't ring. Ah, uh, it's incredible. Incredible. But it is when you consider now they, you know, they they spend two and a half hours choreographing a you know a seven minute match that um you know frankly it, it it's you know it is amazing some of the acrobatic things and very athletic things that they do today and i realized that you know you can't uh you know just get throw your body out there and jump over the top rope and do a you know a you know, three three quarter turn to a backflip to land on somebody. If you don't know that person is definitely going to be there, be prepared to to uh, take your help you take that fall, or you're going to kill yourself. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Well, so, yeah. There's so. there, there's that. Uh, making sure the cameras are in the right place as well. To make sure you catch the move and 
Yeah, yeah. So it's you know it's really more today like making movies than it is uh, what I'm I was used to, and and I get it because I've I've been to WWE shows and watched them in the arenas, and then come back and watched it on television, and it was like I was watching two different things. Yeah, it's like because of the camera angles and everything they were able to to do, and and the thing they were able to just tell a completely different story than what I you know witnessed when I watched it live. So what are so you mentioned WWE? What are you just watching them? Are you watching AEW? What is what is what is you know what are you watching nowadays? I, I, I watch uh, I watch more WWE than I do anything else. The, the AEW stuff is a little 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 out there for me. In regards to, uh, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't like with this, the style or just because it's, I mean, it, it is, I don't want to say like it's more, in, it is more indie style, I guess. And it's not as slickly produced, if you will, for WWE, like as WWE. I, yeah, no, it's not as slick and, and nobody's going to be as slick as them. They, they've got it down to a complete art form. Yeah. Who who do you like nowadays in WWE? Um I mean like I mean the bloodline to me has been one of the best things uh, going in the last couple of years. Is there anything else that you're loving? Uh you know, well I'm a I'm a big Seth Rollins fan and and of course he's you know, he's not been used uh to the degree he was several years ago when he was a champion and all that stuff. But he's like one of the best all-around performers to me uh you know currently and, and Randy Orton same thing. And I love the new Brock Lesnar. I love Brock as a babyface uh, and showing personality and things he's done. Yeah, who, and, who and, did and he I, cut promos? He can cut yeah, promos. I mean, I mean, he's excellent, <laughs> and 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 I'm and I'm glad uh, I'm I'm glad Roman has gotten the run that he has. I mean, they pushed him so hard, couldn't figure out what to do with him, you know, to to really get him to that next level. And then you know he get, you know gets sick, he's gone, he comes back, and you know becomes you know, iconic uh, in in the heel that he's character that he's performed, and uh, and and then you 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 tag Paul Heyman oh my in, gosh. in that in that whole thing, and Paul is is just a genius, and he is arguably going to go down in history as one of the best minds and and performers from uh, on any level uh, that there's ever been, because nobody nobody can talk any better. Uh, from a managerial point, and there's been some greats. I mean, Bobby Heenan, you know, on and on and on. There's been some absolute amazing people, but the 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 longevity of what Paul's accomplished oh. is second to none. I mean, there's just no you can't even you can't even I can't even find anybody to measure him against. <laughs> I I had him on on this show uh, about a year and a half ago, and he did the interview in character. It was. It was fantastic. He was. It was one of the best uh, interviews we've had in the show. It was just uh, everything was in character. Anything I'd bring up, and oh man, I mean, outstanding. Did you work with him? Did he he, he come to NWA before yeah, you were going? Well, well, he. So <laughs> funny enough. So when Paul was an inspiring promoter, he brought Flair and I to Studio Fifty Four in New York. Oh my gosh! To, to give. Flair, a, the the wrestler of the year award in 1985, and and this was before Flair and I had started our our you know our program, and Flair was still a babyface, so so it was uh, it was a very unique 
you know, setting to see Paul like that. And then I was with Paul when he was uh, Paulie Dangerously yep. in, in WCW. Uh, and I got we got to be pretty close friends there. And, of course, that was after after my accident when I was working behind the scenes uh, in a corporate capacity uh, you know, with the company. And, and we got to be good friends. So I've known him. We still, we still uh, text back and forth. Uh, here, there, and, and I'm still I'm still just a huge fan of his, just because he he's just, he's just an amazing, amazing heel. I, I I I I he is so good in these segments. Like I mean, just the detail, the the small detail of just his reaction anytime Roman is talking, or when Sammy was talking, or you know when Jay or Jimmy were talking, and just uh, he doesn't have to say anything, and he just sells it so well. Yeah, absolutely, and, and yeah, it can be a look. It can be, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a just a glance or a reaction to you know he 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 sells it a hundred percent, you know, like old school, like nobody's business. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, you know, and and one thing you mentioned, you know, him his talking because there, there's guys when I was watching that you would gravitate to. Because of how they talked, and they weren't always the wrestlers. It was the managers, Bobby Heaton. It was you know Paul Lee, uh, Cornette. I mean, these guys who just went on, you know. And I know you worked with Cornette. I think at some point because he was in uh, in Crockett for a while in the eighties, right? Did he- oh no, I worked with him at length in Mid South. I had a wrestling too, and I were in a long feud with the Midnight Express. And uh, ooh, yeah, I, no, I watched him from from the get-go and and he's just such a natural uh heat-seeking missile <laughs> type, type guy i mean you could want to kill him never met him in your life and five minutes after you've seen him you just want to strangle him i mean he he's uh no he he's very very unique guy um did they because they would help get guys over that maybe couldn't do it on their own? I mean, because I know some guys, you know, like uh, like you know, Bobby wasn't always like the best talker or whatever. But they about Dennis, uh, uh, it was a Cordry um, that was with them and Connery. everything. Yeah, Dennis Connery. Connery, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's yeah, they were the original Midnight Express, Dennis, Dennis and Bobby, and and then of course Stan came in later, and Bobby Eaton, probably you know one of the best in ring technicians ever. Uh, you know what he was able to do in the ring, and he just, you know, he didn't want to talk. I mean, that just was not his thing. So he was, he was totally happy to let Cornette be a motor mouth and do do what he did. Uh, you know, and uh, but yeah, just just so many talented people in a day when it was, you know, so much more improvisational than than it is today, and and it was truly, you know, an, an art form. And and I get why, you know they they've had to gravitate towards they what they do and and what what they've got to have for production quality you know consistency and all that. But so many magic moments just won't ever occur, just simply because of what it's evolved into. Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing that's involved is now like the women matches have. Uh... It definitely come a long way. I mean, because back then maybe there were a, a feature match on the card if any, if anybody if you even had a women's match, and now it's it's a, it's a bigger part of it, at least in uh, WWE. Well, and I'm glad they've ushered that in because women certainly have the you know the capacity you know to to work that style, work that level. I mean, Gail Kim was doing it way before it was fashionable, 
you know, uh, Gail was working that style in the WWE back when, you know, they wanted girls to, you know, just be pretty and be sex symbols and, and everything else. And, and, and frankly, you know, that's why she left and went to TNA. Yeah. Uh, because she didn't fit in that, that mold or what it was, but she would have been perfect, you know, in, you know, in, in 2022, uh, you know, she would be a megastar. Yeah, she was, she was great. And, uh, uh, then you know now you you, know, you got Charlotte, you got Becky. Um, you, you know, I mean they, they've uh, you know, obviously they've been great for a while, but it, it is nice to see you know, Bianca Belair and uh, you know the next generation, if you will. I know it's hard. It seems hard. Is it harder today to create superstars in this business because of everything is over not overexposed, but you have access to it twenty four seven. Yeah, and I don't know. I, I mean, I think it might be harder. You know, for the big picture, for, you know, for lots of them. But then to the same extent, I almost think if given the opportunity, someone that thought like I do or like Dusty does or like guys like, you know, the the Jack Briscoes and the Harley races and that those kind of guys could stand out as so marketably different if give if put on a stage, and I'm not saying grab a headlock and 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 bore them to death, but I'm saying you could be so believable by comparison that you know, I, I, like I joke people, they say, well, you know, what do you think of, of Brock? And I, I'm a huge Brock fan, but I, I would tease and say, but man, I, I I sure wish I could have shown him how to do that suplex right because he doesn't <laughs> seem to be able to beat anybody. Suplex. <laughs> 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 and and so you know it, it's those kind of things because you know finish a finish used to be a finish and today finishes are high spots yeah and and, it, and it's like you know Ronnie Garvin the hands of stone you know he had one you know give you that one shot and knock you out you know he didn't have a whole slew of things in his bag of tricks but if he caught you with the shot you were going you're going down and so so much of the overdone could be uh, uh, capitalized on by somebody that did something really, really good and can make people almost imagine for a moment that you went off script, right? Yeah. They usually said, you know what? Watch this. You know, <laughs> you think you're so smart, you know, I'm, I'm going to and, and have everybody react to it accordingly. I mean, it would, it'd be fun. There's just a lot of things you could do. Uh, but, but to make everybody a superstar, you know, everybody's not cut out to be a superstar. Some of the people are flashy and they look great and they're like a million bucks, but they just don't have that grit, gut thing, intangible thing in them that allows you to capture people's imaginations. Yeah. 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 You bring up a good point about, you know, the finisher is kind of, you know, come and gone in some ways, you know, or it takes four of them to, to put somebody down or three, you know, I got to hit this move again and again, um, you know, cause that never happened. I mean, other than, you know, Hogan kicking out somebody's finisher, like nobody, you know, that didn't happen ever. You know, uh, Undertaker no. hit the tombstone, you're done. You know, Flair's figure four. If you can get to the ropes, good luck, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have people, I have people that, you know, don't know me from back then. They said, well, did you have a finish? Yeah, belly to belly, that was a finish? I said, yeah, that was a finish. And, you know, and it's like they're like, you know, comparing it, to the day, but I mean, even Stone Cold Steve Austin, I mean, he didn't do a whole lot of things, but when he hit the stunner, it was done. Yeah. You know, you kick and brawl and fight and, 
hit them with a stunner and go have a couple beers. What a good gig. Yeah, exactly. Stop a butthole in somebody and stun them, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, the belly, uh, the uh, belly to belly, uh, Harley Race. Uh, I, I remember he had something of that nature. He had a couple of moves, but that was one I remember he had. And then uh, uh, I think it was like Bailey. Like that's the only two I can think of who had a four finishing maneuver. You know. Hmm. Yeah. No, it's true. So, so it's so anyway. It, it's like I said, it's progress. It's it's uh, and, it, and it goes into everything we do. You watch entertainment today and watch movies, and you know they're. The the things that intrigued people in the you know in the seventies, let alone the eighties, uh, you know wouldn't wouldn't even draw at the box office today. I mean, I grew up on John Wayne and Charles Bronson and Clint Eastwood and you know those kind of folks, and those characters were what I modeled everything you know behind, and th- that wouldn't even play you know, out at all in today's fast action packed, you know, world of, you know, everything's got to be bigger than life. So, you know, wrestling has just followed the same path. Well, you need a lot of CGI now for these uh, Marvel movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause you can't, yeah. I mean, the, 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 you know, I was like, I was laughing. I was watching old smoking and the bandit. The original one was on TV this past week. And I was going, I'm watching when they actually jumped the cars, you know, across the tanks and yeah. the stuff. I'm thinking, Man, if they made one of those today, it would be, it, 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 it would, it would be just horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The first one's a classic. The sequels, uh, I saw the second one in theaters. I mean, where they took out the uh, the roller coaster, but uh... yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and, and you know, the, back when there were you know stuntmen that actually did stunts, and you know, and it wasn't all artificial intelligence putting it together. Yeah. Oh, by the way, not to backtrack on something, you mentioned headlocks. A Harley Race made an appearance years ago, uh, I guess, at the Khedive Shrine Center. They had a wrestling event here in Chesapeake, and uh, he put me in the headlock, man, and holy cow. Um, you know, he was, you know, maybe, I don't know, like, like 60-plus at the time, but geez, Louise, you know. <laughs> no, Harley, Harley Race was a man's man and double-tough double son uh. of a gun, and, you know, that – that's the lineage of <laughs> NWA champions that that were really something special. Yeah, you know, it's you know, with I'm glad there's still some footage of that era because like people just it's like don't understand like what that guy could do. You know, they they probably are more familiar with his late run and WWF, but like, geez, oh god, man, you know, I wouldn't want to mess with that guy back then. <laughs> well, I don't know if you, there's a clip somewhere you can watch where he slammed Andre on the floor in Japan. Oh wow! And it, and 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 didn't even think about it. And Andre was like, you know, five hundred plus, and he just scooped him up, shoom, boom, boom, bam, you know, slammed him. And I think when Hogan slammed him in WrestleMania, I think he tore his flat, and he screwed up all kind of stuff and everything else. And you know, here Harley, he you know, smoked a Marlboro before he went out, <laughs> goes out there and picks up a giant and slams him on the daggone concrete. So, so is it, and you may or may not know what's, I guess, well, Andre was afraid of, afraid of two guys, basically, Haku and Harley. So I guess the Harley thing, you could probably back that up, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and Haku was just, you know, all the Haku stories are, don't even do him justice because he's just a freak, freak of, you know, he's a modern barbarian. <laughs> How did that get? Yeah, all the stories I heard, just, you know, that guy, W, did you, Ever, I guess, cross his path or you know, post wrestling? Oh, we were career? friends. I mean, we we he was a 
rookie breaking in. He was in Florida with me back in uh, 82, 81, 82. And uh, he was just, you know, he was just fun. I mean, you know, all those Samoans were crazy. But, but uh, you know, and then you mix alcohol with it and forget it. But, I mean, yeah, I had to, he wasn't like he was, you know, had a bad attitude or he was, you know, bad guy to be around. He just uh, protected the business and didn't like smart alecks. Yeah, I mean, because he looked like a guy. I mean, like you know, it was probably a cool guy. But then, if you crossed him, then it was a different story, right? It's... Yeah, yeah, and, and you don't take people of that size and and capability, and you know, say don't poke the bear. Well, <laughs> yeah, don't poke the Samoan. <laughs> it's not it's not usually a good idea. Well, Magnum, we are looking forward to you coming to town. You're going to be here Saturday, March 18th, Virginia Championship Wrestling at Hampton High School. You do what, photos, autographs? Yep, sure am. And uh, looking forward to seeing the folks. And, um, you know, just, it's, it's going to be, be a neat event. Appreciate that. Hey, by the way, you're involved with uh, Power Town Wrestling. I am. I'm a, I am a, uh, a, a member on the board and, uh, and a stockholder. So uh, it, it's a new new company. I'll say new. We've been working on things here for it seems like forever. But uh, we had our first line of uh, of figures coming out uh, that are actually going to land here sometime at the end of this month or middle of April uh, from 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 Hong Kong, and uh, we've got about two hundred. Uh, 200 wrestling legends from the past on board and we're, we're trying to, you know, give some exposure and do some things for folks that, you know, came way before all this stuff became fashionable. Yeah. Uh, and, and we're going to let, let their memories be relived and, um, you know, to do something to get back to their families and, uh, you know, folks, folks from their family tree, because a lot of them are passed on, but, uh, uh, Greg Gagne is one of my partners in the business, and another gentleman named Steve Rosenthal, who was uh, famous for the, Rem- the original Remco figures back in the 80s. Uh, he did all the AWA stuff back then. Oh, wow. So, so uh, yeah, we've got a, quite a, a colorful group of people that have come together to make this happen, and uh, we're, we're going to make some neat stuff that I think, think that you know, people will find nostalgic and uh, you know, kind of fun to yeah. see you know, what we do. Yeah, I'm looking at some of the names. Uh, of course, you're, you're Paul, a part of this. Uh, Luthez, uh, uh, Bruiser Brody, Stan Hansen, one of my favorites. Kerry uh, Von Erich. Mm-hmm. What yeah, was it like? Well, did you one. did you work with Bruiser at all? Did you guys? Oh yeah, I was a I, I was very. I, I met Bruiser when I was just in the business six months, and we immediately. Uh, had a click, had a friendship, and I was in a lot of battle walls and stuff with him and Stan both, never never in a singles or a tag match, you know, against him or anything. But uh, I, I loved I loved him like like uh, somebody I'd known my entire life. Yeah, he, he was that kind of a talent, man. And uh, I was always, so, um, you know, it sucks how that turned out for him. And then, uh, and I always loved Stan Hansen, too. That, that guy just, uh, just in the ring, the whole... Ah, it's just yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, back back when you know you knew who the good guys and the bad guys were, and men were men, and it was uh, you know it was just a different era. And, and gosh, if you see Stan today, he still looks like he could dagger 
give you a lariat and take you right out of your shoes. <laughs> Probably still carry the you know the the, the bell and the uh, and smoking a cigar somewhere, but <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Magnum, thank you so much. I, I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Well, it's my pleasure, and uh, I look forward to seeing all the folks up there in Virginia here You know, in a very short period of time. Well, it'd be great seeing you next uh, Saturday, March 18th, and I uh, appreciate the time coming in. And, uh, yeah, you're going to you know relive some uh, memories coming back to Hampton Roads. Well, it's been a pleasure, and uh, I thank you for all your hospitality. All right. Magnum, you have a great day. We'll talk to you later. Right, you too. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Wasn't that guy awesome? Man, uh, thank you so much, Magnum, for taking the time and uh, chatting with me about uh, just about the awesome stuff in, in, in the history of your career, man. Just uh, the cool stuff with, uh, you know, the key to Koloff and, and Tolly Blanchard and, uh, and wrestling here in Norfolk and ODU and getting into the business. And wrestling at Scope, uh, you know, sometimes you see Scope on, uh, you know, SmackDown events. Our raw events, and uh, that building uh, goes back to the, uh, I think it was like in the early seventies. Uh, it was built. A lot of uh, NWA shows in there. A lot of history that took place in there, uh, from one time to another, including uh, some WCW pay per views for, uh, you know, WWE got their uh, get their uh, foothold in that building. There you go. Anyway, so again, uh, Virginia Championship Wrestling uh, Saturday, March eighteenth. Magnum TA will be there, and uh, what, what an awesome event uh, they got there. Uh, I love the main event because you got uh, Phil Brown challenging in a triple threat match. Uh, he's uh, trying to win the championship from uh, Dirty Money and also uh, Papadon in the uh, triple threat match. So that's your uh, main event next evening. And again, Magnum TA will be there. Again, this is uh, March 18th, Hampton High School. More info at vcwprowrestling.com. And looking forward to to that event. Uh, you know, check out some of our other episodes. You know, we, we go old school. We had Sergeant Slaughter on the show before. We had current stars, uh, you know, like Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins, Drew McIntyre, Big E, Natalia, Mark Henry, Eddie Kingston. Oh, my God. The Eddie Kingston interview is fantastic, by the way. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Eddie Kingston, fantastic. Wardlow's been on the show. Sorry he lost the title the other day, but uh, he's uh, he was on the show. He was great, dude. That guy... Man, anyways, uh, check out the classic episodes, Eat, Sleep, Podcast, Repeat, ESPR. Subscribe to us. Uh, you can go through our old episodes and uh, find us, you know, Spotify, TuneIn, iTunes, SoundCloud, and uh, Stitcher, all those. Uh, just uh, search ESPR Wrestling. Give us a follow. Give us a subscribe. Facebook and Twitter, ESPR99. And uh, thank you so much. And as always, make sure you eat, sleep, podcast, and repeat. Have a great day, everybody.